I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town Podcast. In episode 97 of the Food About Town Podcast, I'm bringing you the first part of my interview with Mark Cupolo from Rocco. The second part will actually be dropping tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. But in this episode, the first hour, we really dive into Mark's career. Uh, we go on a little bit of journey to get there, of course, but we go through his entire path through the dining history of Rochester. I learned a lot about places I hadn't heard of before and you know how the Rochester dining scene got towards where we are today, which I found absolutely fascinating, and learned about some of Mark's past and how he got into the restaurant business in general and some of his experiences at the, you know, the beginning of the new American movement in American dining. So uh, a lot to learn in this episode, absolutely. And stay tuned tomorrow for part two, where we go into some more current topics. So if you enjoy this episode, please share it out on social media. I'm at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram, Food Above Town on Facebook. And make sure you tag Rocco on any of the posts going out. Thanks for listening. So, looks like we're out of the heart of winter, the dreary heart of winter, and now we're into the dreary transition into spring, 10 o'clock in the morning, and it's gray and drizzly, but I've got a bright light of sunshine next to me. <laughs> Is that a good way to describe you? Uh, I feel pretty good today. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Good. Bright light of sunshine. Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourself, sir? Uh, Mark Cupolo from Rocco Restaurant. Yeah, I've seen it written a number of different ways. So Rocco Restaurant, Rocco, Osteria Rocco, if we're being Italian and fancy-like. Right, right. Well, we started out with that Osteria moniker, maybe, is the yeah. name? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it stuck a little yeah. bit, you know, and uh, I, it's really not what we are, uh, so I... I kind of shy away from it a little so bit. So when, when when you see that when you see that moniker, what what is what does an osteria mean to you? Like well, typically? Italian translation of that would be tavern. So it's a very simple, very uh, casual, right? Very casual. Sometimes a roadside kind of a place. Uh, very very simple menu structure. Yeah, you know, not often a lot of what they call antipasti. It's mm-hmm. a place uh, where pasta and Simple. Simple. So it would be kind of transitioning into what the what's the next level in Italian dining, kind of the, oh boy, I had it in my head a second ago. Trattoria. Trattoria, yeah. That's what I would consider us. Which is, I mean, not, again, in no bad way or good way. It's kind of the mid-tier, comfortable place to go dine. Yep. And the way I describe it, and a great way to describe what Rocco is, is kind of the 
um, perfect, comfortable neighborhood place that does things really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a family business more or less. Uh, you know, small, uh, hands on. Yeah, uh, and we cook. You know, food, simple food. I mean, you know, the, the next level, I guess, in in Italy is ristorante, and right. I, I think that's what most people here would call it—is a restaurant. But yeah, there's another layer of service I think that is associated with. Uh, what they would call ristorante. Right. Then you're getting more of the, you know, uh, tablecloth service and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Fancifying it a little bit. Yep. And yeah. I know a lot of people, and I don't say this in a bad way, people will consider Rocco a fancy restaurant. And nope. I, I find it very comfortable mm-hmm. and the kind of place where, um, and the kind of places I tend to go to more often are the comfortable places that just execute food. Right, that's what we do. In a really very nice way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for anybody that hasn't been there, and if you're listening to this, you almost definitely, almost definitely have been, <laughs> um, where is Rocco located? Uh, Rocco's at 165 Monroe Avenue. Uh, we're on the city end of Monroe all the way up. Yeah, so that's uh, you know right down near, for reference, kind of right towards the city. City, I always say kind of kitty corner from the Strong Museum. Yeah, yeah, right around there. So... And Rocco's been around since when? We opened in December of 2008. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, for some reason, it seems like the kind of restaurant that's always been there. Seems like that to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's 10, 10 years coming It'll up be 10 now. years this December. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those places, because I think that's, for me, almost when I started diving in a little bit more into food, I was three years out of college at that point, and I was starting to learn about food. Um, at, and I had always heard about it and it seemed like the kind of place that when it's there, it seems like it has been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, for me is kind of a, one of the best compliments you can give to a place. Sure. Sure. Um, so 2008 now, geez, everything, everything around in that area has changed a lot in the last 10 years. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's transitioning. A bit. It is There's, right now. Sure. Yeah. Um, because there's you know more restaurants popping up over there, uh, you've got the Owl House around the corner, and you know some of the bars have transitioned a bit more towards the, um, you know, upscaling things a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, I'm just trying to think because that that whole area I find interesting, the whole Monroe Ave stretch from where you are down to the 490 on the other side mm-hmm. is kind of one of the. She's one of my food centers where I'll go to sure. that whole stretch there. Sure. Um, some of my favorite go-to spots, you know, all the way from, geez, I guess Cedar would be the far end, mm-hmm. which, you know, I love that kind of food. Sure. Yeah, I love and it too. transitioning from there all the way down from Han Noodle to, um, to the Colombian uh, Empanada Place, all those places from there. And I think that's, that's where I'm seeing it is, you know, the sort of the prevalence of these new restaurants popping through that whole area Mm -hmm. has Mm -hmm. to be kind of kind of interesting from you know your guys perspective to see food pop up on that street more and more yeah i think so you know um i don't know you get you get in your own little world there and sometimes (laughs) you don't even know what's uh and i go out the back door in and out the back door every day Mm -hmm. so i don't necessarily even see monroe avenue that much But, uh, yeah, it's a cool street. I think it could stand a little cleaning up, and I think yeah. that'll happen. It might be our next uh, place to be. I kind of see that. Yeah, I, I do, mean, too. When you yeah. see the South Wedge, and then, um, you know, now the South Wedge is transitioning over to that Swilbury area, kind yep. of popping now. 
Um, you could easily see Monroe being that. Sure. Um, yeah. I said it's the next. Uh, would you say the hipster? Yeah, kind of the next new, you know, place to walk. I mean, it's a walking street, you know, it is. for sure. You there's know, so maybe, much there. Maybe even more so than the wedge, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, from Vula's and all the way down. Yep, yep. She's yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Various other types of businesses and absolutely stuff. You know. But yeah, my barber's down there now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, so I'm I'm. There's always something for me to do in and around that yeah, area. Yeah. When we had the power outage not too long ago, we uh, I was doing my laundry at a laundromat down there. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Nice yeah. new, nice guy. I met the guy. Cool yeah. guy. He's run a nice shop there, you know. Damp laundry that day, though. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, was, uh, that was, we got to check into the Strath because we had no power at our house, which was nice. So we, I had we, a nice weekend. We lived through it here. <laughs> uh, geez, when, when it was... Um, this was what last February, right? Yep. yep. And we we stuck it out here. Um, ended up sleeping in the you know slept slept in the bedroom and everything. I think towards the end we were definitely in the 30s in our bedroom, which was maybe not the most comfortable and maybe not the smartest thing to do, but we yeah, still, we still did it. <laughs> we were mostly worried about our dogs. So yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what kind of dog? We are Boston Terrier people. Ah, Boston Terrier people. Yeah, the small yeah. dogs maybe not. Uh, Maybe yeah. not as equipped for the cold weather. She's real small. They're short-haired. And okay. So we, you know, it was great. Yeah. Well, it's a good excuse to go over there anyways. And close to the restaurant. It was nice to go to work in two and a half minutes. Yeah, oh, yeah that's not yeah. bad at all. Yeah. Um, so I guess I want to dive in a little bit. And I've heard from other people, I, and I just haven't heard it, you know, in detail. So your background in food, when did you get started cooking? I started real early uh, when I was in high school maybe 15, 14, 15, as a dishwasher at a restaurant called Charlie Brown's in Penfield. And uh, that is, is that still there? It is still there, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's, where, where is that, is, where is that one located? That's, is that's, that right on? Well, you know where the Delta Sonic is in Penfield? Yeah, yeah. And then there's, a, I think, a Tom Walls or a Bill Gray's or something right there. Okay. It's down that, what they used to call Old Penfield Road. Okay. And, uh... Yeah, I started there as a dishwasher at 14 and stayed there pretty much, oh, I'm going to say on and off till I was 18. Okay. Was it kind of the kind of the summer job or after school job? No, full-time job, you know. Uh, high school wasn't really uh, my thing, I guess, you know. Okay. So we got out early. All my friends worked there, my closest friends. We'd get out and we forego all the after school activities, the sports, the this, the that, and uh, just to get down there and uh, start work in the afternoon, and we stayed till 1, 2 in the morning back then. I mean, that place rocked till 2 in the morning every night. So working full-time after school. After school, sure. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a way to, you know, it's, so when you, when you started, was it something that grabbed your way away, or was it just something to do that wasn't school? Yeah, something to do that wasn't school. There's something about the business that, you know, it's a very, uh, if you like to be active all the time. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure I'm not, I, I mean, I never will at this point, but, you know, a desk type person was not in my. Not in the cards not for in you. Not the cards. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a student. Yeah. Know? Well, yeah. That, and that's okay. I mean, it's, there's, there's a certain. There's a certain thing, and people tend to categorize people, hey, you're smart or not, you're good at school or you're not, and that's kind of the categorization. And there's so much more to doing anything productive with your life that is not 
it's not just the academic. Some people, it just comes easy. Right. And sure. you know, you can look at a family. I mean, you know, like my family is a great example. I'm like that, like the academic part was easy for me. My sister, she did, she got, you know, high end degrees, but she had to work really hard. And my brother was one of those, you know, that's not, it wasn't what he was built for. Really right. smart guy, really sure. sharp with building things. And he, he understands situations really well. Not great at academics. Right. Wasn't sure. his thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure a lot of experts in their field are not necessarily academically oriented. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So anyways, yeah, that was good for me. I liked that my friends worked there. There was something about it right then and there that it was owned by uh, 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 three brothers, the Delella brothers, uh, Frank, Tony, and Mike. And uh, I just... I just watched what they were doing and I liked it, you know? I mean, it looked great. They were more or less hanging out with the crowd, partying, right. and sitting down and having their lamb chops. And uh, and I said, wow, that looks great, you know? I, you know, big car, fancy, you know, they were living the kind of, it was a busy, very busy restaurant. Was that, So that was kind of the um, classic American restaurant yeah. style? Yeah, at the time, we're talking about the late 70s, I guess, uh, or mid-70s. Yeah, yeah, it was a, I guess what they would call maybe continental cuisine, yeah. kind of a tiny menu at the time and a very busy bar. I mean, it was the three deep at the bar from four till two in the morning. And this was the what would you call the the old school, old fashioned crowd? Yeah, you know, it was for some reason they were attracting the kind of the who's who of there was a lot of uh, politicians and lawyers and. That you kind of place. That kind of place. And yeah. It was a heavy drinking place. Oh, for and, sure. But that was the, in the in those times. It was completely different than it is now in terms of drinking and driving. And, oh yeah. You know, so it was. I mean, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. It's hard to believe that we had a full dining room at two a.m. there every single night. Yet, in my restaurant, you know, at nine thirty, it's a ghost town. Yeah. You know, it's really changed. Yeah, and uh, I think that's one of those things that. You know, I've remarked on to people before is how our late night dining scene is pretty much negligible. Um, there's, you know, very few places that'll serve food late. And if they do, you know, it's it, it's it's kind of difficult to get good late night food here in Rochester. Yeah, sure. We just talked about it. It was, uh, again, you know, people want to have it and people, restaurateurs often want to be the person that has it, but I guess the demand is just not sufficient. Yeah, which is kind of unfortunate. It's sometimes it's sometimes that is the perfect time to go, and especially when you're working in the business. Sure, sure. Um, I know I've been to other cities where there are places that are kind of um, designated uh, industry spots, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. actually in a lot of ways from people I talk to, you know, Rocco's that place on a, you know, on Monday night is kind of the non-designated yeah, people good, come out. Monday and then like a Friday afternoons, people come out that are in and around industry stuff. The, exactly. Yeah, our Friday lunch too, now that you mention it, is a lot of industry people. And uh, Mondays has turned into a good industry night for us and always has been right from the get-go. Yeah. So it's fun night. It's my, one of my favorite nights. I mean, being open on a Monday for one because yep. almost everybody else is closed, Yep. that sure. helps. That helps. Um, but the consistency, and I think that's, you know, when I talk to... I've talked to a lot of people in and around the business, and almost everybody will talk about Monday nights at Rocco being that kind of place where people just feel comfortable. They want to get food they understand, and they know it's going to be good. Sure. You know, they don't want to think much about it, I guess, you know, and it's, you know, when you work with food, too, all week long and a specific type of food that your cuisine or whatever you're doing, 
uh, you, know, you don't. It's maybe nice to not have that, you know, yeah. when you're going out. You know, absolutely. I'm, I feel a little the same too. Um, you know, when I go out, like I, that's why I like ethnic going to ethnic places because I don't oh, really understand sure. it. You know, so <laughs> I don't have to analyze it or figure out what's going on. I don't know anything about it. Oh, that's know? interesting. See. For me, I'm one of those, when I go to a new place, if I go to a cuisine that's new, I can't just go and eat it. I have to start reading about it and learning about it. Sure. So, you know, I, I know I'm never going to be like a, you know, Szechuan food expert or anything like that, but I can't, I can't go there and enjoy it and then not go and read about it and try and figure out, hey, how do you do this? How do you cook this? Um, I, I just can't help it. It's yeah. one of those, I'm... It's your nature, it, comes... it sounds like, but, you know, that's good. I, I I, see it as a relief in the worrying about, you know, anything. I don't, well, I don't... That's, that's an interesting take on it. I, it's, and to tell you the truth, that never crossed my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that, that idea of just going and forgetting about it, that never crossed my mind. I, I, it's one of those things that I think about now. I'm like, wow, I can't, that just, it doesn't ring to me as something. Well, trust me when I say when I go to a restaurant that's in the same genre of what we do, yeah, not necessarily the same cuisine, but you know, then I am sort of working. You know, it's you're analyzing it, you're wondering how much their servers are making, how much, uh, how they do things, what the cost of their ingredients, where they get their ingredients, right? Uh, and I I understand that all exists in in places that I don't really understand, uh, but. It's often different, you know. I mean, where the Asians buy their food, I I have no idea. You know, yeah. I know some places around, you know. Of course. Uh, but I don't know them all, certainly. Yeah, and it's I, I find it interesting when I talk to, you know, I get to know some of those people and find out, hey, you're buying buying your stuff from here, your day-to-day stuff might come from this place. Right. Like, I, I just, yeah, I find it fascinating. I, and when you get, you know, I've become regulars at some of those places, and you can walk in and say hi to people and learn a bit more about things. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't know, just end up doing Yeah, that. sure. Well, that's, you know, you're not in the business, so yeah. you, and you're what well, you are in a sense, and you need, you want the information, at, you know. But it's different, also different kinds when you're talking about, you know, you know, per, per item costs and figuring out all that stuff. It's that next level deep that, you know, just tires everybody out trying, right. to, trying to think through all that all the right. time. Right. I think about that, you know, almost every minute that I'm alive. So <laughs> <laughs> it is nice to somehow get a little break. Yeah. It's it's not just, oh, what, what kind of flour are they using? He's like, how much a pound was that flour? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyways, back back to the back to the life story part. So you were Charlie Brown's for a long time. Long yeah. There? You were there I for was a while? there through high school and a little bit, a couple years after that. Didn't do much in the after high school educational arena. Sure. But, uh, wound up, worked a couple other little jobs uh, in restaurants. I can barely remember what they were, but uh, I had the opportunity to work in on Martha's Vineyard for a season in the early 80s with a friend of mine. And uh, you, that both, was, you went out together just to go, or was he already going out he there? He was there. He yeah. had a, a restaurant there, uh, and he knew I was... Uh, in the biz, you mm-hmm. know, and so I went up there and spent a season with him, uh, and that was a great experience. Uh, a lot, I mean, when you work in a resort town, you are working seven days a week, 8 a.m. to midnight. Right. And then uh, come the end of the season, and there it was October 1, when all the tourism was done. Yeah. Then you got to enjoy 
the island a little bit. And but, I mean, people just disappeared at that point. Th- people disappeared, you know. And the people that lived there, obviously, were still there, but it just, uh, the population of the island decreases dramatically. And, and that's, I mean, you're also talking about, you know, Martha's Vineyard being one of the, you know, one of the areas with the most concentrated, like, summertime wealth yep, sure. in the entirety of the country. So you have a, uh, has to be some interesting challenges working in that kind of environment. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was in the kitchen. At so that you're, point. you're just cooking, yeah. Yeah, I was young and I was just trying to do what this guy wanted me to do, you know. Yeah, which is good enough. Impress him, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it was a lot of work, a busy, busy, busy place, you know. So that was cool. And then, uh, then I kind of had to decide where I was going with my life. And uh, I wound up going, uh, deciding to go to the Culinary Institute of America. Okay. And that was in 1980. One, I think. What, which, uh, was that in New York, that one? That or? was in New York, okay. in the Hudson Valley, Hyde yep. Park, New York, uh, which was a beautiful, beautiful place to be, right on the Hudson. Uh, so I was there and graduated there in 83. Uh, went to Boston after that. Okay. Worked at the Hotel Meridian, which was a very fine uh, French hotel company. Worked in their fine dining uh, restaurant, and at the time was uh, kind of what they call it was right in the middle of what they called the Nouvelle cuisine. Yeah, why don't you define that a little bit? Because it was kind of uh, it was that mid eighties, early to mid eighties movement in food here, right? Yeah. Here and in and in France, in France started in France, and it uh, yeah, it was a lightning of the classic French cuisine. Uh, it was, uh, if I remember our program there, there were a lot of uh, vegetable purees we were making, mm. uh, less cream uh, in general. Uh, the butter, we still use quite a bit of butter, uh, making uh, beurre blanc and, and flavoring them with all kinds of various purees and mm-hmm. vegetable juices. And gotcha. It was a fresher, lighter cuisine. Yeah, thing. and if I, I believe I, I was reading something about that recently. And if I remember correctly, there was sort of an untold Japanese influence on that cuisine in France, you know, and maybe it wasn't as credited at the time and now is kind of retroactively being credited as some big influence on that Nouvelle cuisine in France and obviously transitioning over. Sure. You know, that refinement of some of those uh, techniques and obviously presentation was becoming kind of a huge thing at that time as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that was a real real good experience uh what what we i was in school at the cia right when i was leaving is when they were starting uh this push towards what would be called american cuisine Mm. and they opened up a new restaurant there called the american bounty and uh yeah so i was kind of leaving at at, at a time when the school was changing uh to get away more uh, get away a little bit from the classic european cuisine to uh or teaching methods or that kind of thing to a new American thing. Right. So uh, after that, I worked at the hotel for a year. I met a guy, uh, a good, very good friend of mine that was my friend throughout my year there. And then he had moved on to a place called uh, Restaurant Jasper. And uh, he got me a job there. Okay. And I uh, worked there for the next six years, which is a long time, really, for restaurant 
stints, you know. <laughs> Worked all the stations there, became the chef de cuisine. I okay. guess they didn't really call it that back then, I don't think, but uh, sous chef maybe. It's what it was then. Yeah. yeah, and so that was really my my experience that really uh, cemented it for me as yeah. to what, what I liked and didn't like and food and a style. I, I got lucky there because I... I loved his style immensely, and uh, and what what was what was what was what he was doing? Was what that... he was doing at the time was uh, well. Again, I say this was this was a greatest time ever for for getting into it. The this it was the beginning of the new American cuisine, right? Which uh, I'm not sure if anybody how many people even know about that at this point. You know? Yeah. So what define what what was that at the time? Because now, I mean. New American is still used as a term, but it's evolving. Sure, from what it what it started as then, and what it is now is now it's becoming you know a pan global cuisine really sure. with some of these techniques. But it's it's evolved over time. What was it then when it was just starting? Well, then it was uh, back then restaurants and hotels uh, dining were dominated by French chefs, French cuisine, especially on the high end. On the high, right. On the high end, which is really what I've always been associated with. So a lot of things that I'm talking about. Finer dining. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. really, you know, I'm, there's a whole other world out there, I'm sure. Of course. But this is really my experience. So, yeah. And then it was transitioning. These chefs were uh, uh, American kids that were uh, trained by the French guys. And mm-hmm. I, I think a lot in terms of what I know about maybe New York and Cal- uh, Northern California. Of course. You know, that's my knowledge uh, at the time, uh, and the whole farm to table thing started then. It started maybe late seventies, early eighties with right. Alice Waters, uh, Larry Forgione as a guy that uh, Alice Waters gets a lot of credit uh, for uh, farm to table, uh, but uh, Larry Forgione really, really made a huge effort to discover what was being produced in America, all over America. It wasn't so localized at the time. Right. As it, like Larry Forgione wanted California goat cheese. He wanted uh, the shrimp from uh, Louisiana. Right. Uh, and so that was an amazing thing to experience and study and follow. Um, so that's really... And it, it was just such an exciting time, you know, I have to say, for all... I there's probably 30 guys that I could think of that most people, most chefs uh, would know about from that era. Mm-hmm. You know, they have heard their name one place or another. Of but, course. Um, there's a book out there somewhere called Cooking with the New American Chefs. Mm. Uh, great book to look at if you want to uh, understand a little bit about the, the, those times and the beginning of the new American cuisine. It's a little profile on all of these guys and women that uh, started this movement. No, that sounds fascinating, and that it's it had to be kind of interesting to be at that at that inflection point, which has really colored the whole dining scene here in America over the last you know thirty years. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been going strong ever ever, ever since then. Yeah, you know? and obviously in fits and waves. Yeah, uh, where sure. people are caring more and more about local, and you know, knowing the farms where everything's coming from now. Yep. Instead of just you know, then, hey, we're doing American. Now it's it's kind of yeah. refined over time. Yeah, well, that all started back then, too. Sure. It was it was very specific and and naming the farms and your menu descriptions mm-hmm. and, uh, 
it really uh, it started then. Yeah, you know, and I had I happened to be lucky enough to be there right then. Yeah, and Jasper White was a was part of this movement, and he knew all of these people, you know. And we would we would uh, well, if you were Jeremiah Tower or Alice Waters or Paul Prudhomme or uh, oh, on and on, Larry Forgione. Right, right. There's a lot of them. Whenever they were in Boston, they would visit Jasper. Okay. So I got to meet a lot of these people and cook for them. And uh, so it was just, you know, lucky I met my friend Stan. He got me the job. And uh, and then I just fell in love with the style of food, which at the time uh, was a, a, a lot of European stuff still, but transitioning into the local product being used to do these dishes. And some of the, techn- you know, the techniques the still maintained. Yeah, we were making a lot of pasta there. We had a heavy, pretty heavy Italian influence there at the time. Uh, made a lot of pasta. We The restaurant was located on the uh, border of the north end of Boston, which okay. is the Italian neighborhood. So we had that influence there, but seafood obviously was a big influence there. Well, it's what 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 is best to you right at the time. Obviously, being a port city, and obviously Boston has a ton of fresh seafood, but you're also not that far away from you know agricultural centers like you know the Berkshires and sure. that whole area, sure, where yeah. you've got you know amazing things grown in and around Massachusetts mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you can get great local produce throughout the seasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there were there were a couple of wine uh, wineries popping up there too at the time. Okay, uh, which was very interesting. Uh, yeah, it was you know big city big city dining experience. Uh, it was I, I just. It, that was great. Yeah, I, I still love going to Boston. Yeah. I great. mean, it's obviously a different era in dining. Yep. But I yeah. love going to Boston now. It's still, there's a lot of cutting edge places there. Yeah. I love visiting. I have a friend who's in town who's a, you know, serious food nerd like me. And that's what we do. When we go, we, we sure. just go. We go to the cool sure. places and try and see what's, you know, try and see the next uh, next evolution of what's coming. Yeah, I'd say Boston as compared to maybe New York is, you know, it's, a little more traditional, maybe. Yeah, uh, but it's got you know it's got it all. It's got the cutting edge. It's got the you name it. It's a big city. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So any you know I mean in, in the time that I was with Jasper, he transitioned his whole way of thinking, which is a, you know a progression of this new American uh, thing. Is that uh, in the beginning we were doing uh, his interpretations with American ingredients of of European food. Uh, with even a little Asian at the time, he was fascinated with that. But uh, but by the time I left there, we were serving cod cakes and baked beans. You know, yeah. so he moved. He he wanted to be more localized. He wanted his food to represent the region. <laughs> sort and, of uh, traditional. Some of the traditional foods, maybe updated technique wise. Yeah, and things like that. exactly, exactly. You know, we were doing the, the lobster roll became a signature of ours. Wow. And, you know that kind of thing and. Uh, you know, and then he went on to. He always said, "You know, I, I want to, I, I, I always wanted a main clam shack." <laughs> you know? So what That's he great. did was he took uh, that main clam shack idea, blended it with uh, some of the foods and things that he loved from his small fine dining restaurant, and opened up these big giant places called Jasper White's Summer Shack. Wow! And there's three of them uh, in the area up there. One at the Mohegan Sun Casino. And uh, so he's got this big, these big giant places that are serving hot dogs to kids and <laughs> pan roasted lobsters and great wine to the adults. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, 
it's he got what he wanted. He wanted, and he also always said, you know, I want to appeal to uh, the other ninety percent of the population, right? And then still maintain some of that. You can still do that, and it's one of those challenging things that sometimes, you know, for me and people like me, and there's we're always looking for new and different and all this stuff. And sometimes when people make that call and just try and do comfort food perfectly it gets it attaches to that certain thing in your head where you want somebody serves a beef stew i mean not many people have the guts to serve a beef stew in a restaurant anymore or do stuff like that and actually serve a hot dog and do all that stuff yeah yeah and when you do it well people are just happy yeah no i agree yeah we you know it's a little bit about what we do there at rocco you know it's a it's comfort food. Uh, there's no, you know, all the uh, new technique and to do with cooking. That I missed all that. You yeah. Know, I don't know anything about. I've never touched a sous vide machine or, uh, and I, I guess I just don't have the interest in it either. Yeah. You know, I just really fell in love with what I like and the way I like to eat, and that's how we do it. You know, and it, keeping it simple too is just. The consistency factor is, you know, it's just, it adds to that. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. All right. I think what we're going to do is take a quick break and we'll be back with Mark Cupolo from Rocco and see you in a second. This week's episode of the Food About Town podcast is brought to you by Frankly. And that's frankly.com, P-H-R-A-N-K-L-Y.com. Frankly is the best way to find out where your local restaurant sources their food from and how to find that specialty product you love so much. Frankly.com has been recently redesigned, so please check it out and let me know what you think. You can reach me, Stromy, at Frankly.com. Check out Frankly at Frankly.com and join the open source food movement. All right, and we're back with Mark Cupolo from Rocco. And while during the break we were talking a little bit more about... Um, I guess what you call modernist cuisine and that kind of stuff. And I was bringing up uh, one of the podcasts I listen to, which is um, uh, Dave Arnold's podcast, which I absolutely love. And it's kind of nerdery in all things cooking and cocktails and talking about different curing techniques and all these amazing things, you know, hacking stoves. It's fascinating. I love the guy. Um, but we're talking about that and how, like for me, I, I it's interesting to learn, but you know, it doesn't apply to how I cook very much. And it was kind of, uh, um, Mark was kind of talking about that too and how much it doesn't affect what you do and it's kind of yeah. running around around there. Yeah, I've never, for some reason, been interested in the science of cooking or yeah. uh, the temperature. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, what, how long do I cook something? To what temperature do I cook it? Uh, I've never, you know... I just don't do it. You know, you, I cook more by feel and uh, sight. I mean, I can tell, you You know, a good cook can tell by looking at a steak on a grill if it's uh, gone too far with just looking at it. Sure. You know, if I, you know, I cut that steak, I know how much it weighed, what it looked like when I started. It's, it's all about that for me. It's all more of a feel thing and a tasting and being there, you know, being there and watching it all happen. But the science of it, I just... I guess I just never got interested in it. Yeah. See, for me, I'm, when I end up reading it and I end up listening, I, it gives me that, you know, that richness and that depth of what's going on and why. Sometimes it really catches me and I see, hey, 
um, you know, egg temperatures from, you know, 60 degrees up to, you know, 75 degrees C. Like, okay, I learned something interesting. Does it really mean anything to me? I don't know. I don't think so sometimes. Because at some point it's like, you want a soft-barreled egg, put it in for nine minutes and you're done or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, I guess. But, I I mean, I understand why certain people are interested in certain aspects of everything. Yeah. It's like music. I love music, but I... I look at it, and to me, it looks like people are performing magic when they're playing music, you know? Yeah. And I would love nothing more than to know how to do it. But I also, at this point, I, you know, when you run a business, I guess what's become really most important to me is the running of the business. So right. I don't really have time, you know, that, that, that pretty much consumes what I do, you yeah. know? And uh, learning new things for me is maybe... Maybe uh, not in the cards. <laughs> well, it's secondary too. I mean, when when you found something that does consume you in a way that you still enjoy, um, and it sounds like you, it sounds like you still do. Which oh, is, I love it. Yeah, sure. And because you're, I mean, you're kind of a, a chef owner, which is not as common nowadays. Yeah, it's true. That is true. Not as common. And you're kind of you're involved with everything, mm-hmm. and you still you're you're. We were talking beforehand. You still go out and visit and. Yeah. Pick up ingredients and things like that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I do love what I do, and it never feels like work. It just what I, what you wake up and do, and it starts with the the all kitchens start with the purchasing of the ingredients, and uh, I happen to shop around the city a lot for stuff. You know, uh, spend the better part of my morning doing that, and then I bring the stuff in and uh, talk to my team about it in the kitchen and help them during the daytime mostly and I cut a lot of the protein the meat and the fish and uh but they're really making most of the food I've got a guy there first thing in the morning that I've worked with for many years and he gets the ball rolling and and then I spend a little more time out in the dining room at night yeah which certainly is not it's it's an important part of it that I don't think people understand sometimes I mean it's not only just not only you know making sure everything's running smoothly, but actually being there. Sure. Um, people kind of, they do come to expect that at a certain point. Yeah, that's a great way. You know, I never, before halfway through our uh, time at Rocco here, I don't know that I ever really did much dining room yeah. visitation stuff, you know, but it gets to a point where I figured out that it's much easier to watch the entire operation if you're not on the line. You yeah, know. I mean, you can only focus on so much on a busy right. Friday night. I mean, the place is, there's very few places I've seen as absolutely jam-packed as Rocco on a Friday or Saturday night. And you can't, I mean, that kitchen's not big. No, and if you're working a station on a line, you you really don't really have a good idea of what's going on in the Your head's down, right? Dining room. Yeah, your head's down. You know, you can't, uh, if you're working out front as a host type person, which I guess is really what I do a lot now. Uh, you can not only know exactly what's going on in the dining room, the bar, the bathrooms, the uh, everything, and the kitchen too. You mm-hmm. know, you're just moving around. You know, you're watching everything. Well, it's got to be kind of a different perspective on things as you as you've gotten away from the you know maybe the everyday line work. Yeah. Oh, it's it's yeah. It's it gives you a total different perspective. And unfortunately, in our case, it's we you know I see a lot of happy faces. So. Uh, you actually get to see them. <laughs> That's kind of nice, right? When you're in the kitchen, you don't see that. You rely on maybe uh, 
clean or dirty plates when they come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully, any of the plates coming from my tables tend to be very clean. Yeah, I always <laughs> eat all my food regardless if I like yeah, it or I can't, not. Yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, so let's 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 finish out where you were. You know, we were talking about uh, your time working with uh, Jasper White in Boston. Uh, your six years there, and then you transitioned from there to. Well, then I moved to Ro- back home. You moved, moved back home after that. I okay. Moved to Rochester, and uh, I was married at the time to a gal named Sue, and she was my classmate at the uh, Culinary Institute. Okay. And uh, we. Uh, Moved to Boston together, and she stayed in the industry as well. But uh, we moved back to Rochester, and I wanted to open a restaurant. You know, after I left Jasper's, I, I, there was really, for me, nothing else to do. Now, doing it in Boston would have been astronomical, and it just wouldn't have, couldn't have happened, you know. Uh, but I knew I could do it back here. So we mm-hmm. moved back and opened a, up a restaurant called the Victor Grilling Company. Okay. And I'm going to say that was in 1990-ish and uh, continued on with what I was seeing as this new American cuisine as it fit what was happening in Rochester. And uh, we were there for a good 12 years. Wow. Yeah. That's a really good run. Even, yeah. I mean, yeah. Rochester, that's a really good run. Yeah. And, and back then, Victor was nothing compared to what it is now. It was a bit of a haul for, we got a lot of people from Rochester out there too, a lot of industry people and, you know, it just was a, a little bit of a stretch in the, the distance, you know. And oh, yeah. The, the Victor was growing, but it also, uh, you know, suburb, suburban communities, uh, fine dining becomes strictly a weekend kind of a thing. Yeah. So it wasn't, it was hard for us out there with Really, that was the issue. Here in the heart of the city, it's it's really different, and and I'm happy about that. I'm happy to be in the city. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, a 12-year run out in Victor, again, and as you mentioned, before Victor kind of popped. Sure, yeah. Um, because that was kind of the most recent suburb to get majorly populated. Yep. And really accelerated over the last, you know, 20 years here in Rochester. Um, so a good 12-year run there, and that was that, you know, that new American style. Yep. 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 With a little bit of New Englandy stuff in there that yeah. I loved. You know, it just became, I guess, it was really my menu. You it was know, your for place. The first time, you know. <laughs> so, and it was good. I enjoyed it and uh, met great people. And again, I, I actually work with one of the guys that's one of my closest friends still today. Yeah. And uh, we sold that, uh, well, 12 years later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I started working for my friend Tony Galassi. Oh, okay. Actually, I, I go back a minute. I'm sorry. I worked for. I want to. I want to talk about this too. Oh, sure, please. I'm big into the history of. Hey, of there, what's I, going. I find it fascinating, yeah. especially. I, I I like to learn about Rochester's dining history. Yeah. Because I don't know any of it, right. or very little, and I find of, it fascinating to see how Rochester has changed. I mean, I I moved here for college in 2001. And I'm learning about stuff before then and during that time because I was insulated and a stupid college kid. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm I'm learning more about where Rochester was, and obviously, you know, your places have a history in that. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, yeah, there was, it was a whole different, whole different time, you know. Yeah. And I, it is interesting. Um, I have to go back then. I yeah, uh, when we sold the Victor Grilling, um, 
No, I have to go back before that. I'm sorry. When I first moved back to Rochester, I have to take it all back, I guess. <laughs> uh, a gal named Marcia Stern called me, and her and her husband Gary owned the Village Gate. Oh, really? And wow. uh, she was looking for a chef for her restaurant, Hilly's. Okay. Which is where Selena's is now. And the Stearns operated that restaurant for many years. They had uh, pretty much the cream of the crop of Rochester chefs that had gone through that place working there. They were, Stearns were passionate about dining and uh, food and wine and beverage. And they were just, you know, cutting edge restaurant people. Yeah. And uh, so I worked there for a year and... uh, we had a good run there. Back then, people were afraid to go to the Village Gate. I was going to say, that's, so this was like right around when the Village Gate started, right? Was this, when, when did that open? Well, that had opened, I, boy, I think had to open in the, I don't know. Well, I don't know. It was kind when I got there and started that job, I'd been away for, you know, eight years. Um, I think, uh, at any rate, it was... It was not anywhere near what it is today. And, and yeah, people, now it's it's kind of you know that that whole area is the neighborhood of the arts is very comfortable. It's almost completely you know transitioned over. It's been I don't want to use the term gentrified, but it definitely has that a different tinge to it oh, than it did back in the day. Completely. I mean, uh, people from the suburbs, uh, adults uh, that were you know going to finer dining restaurants. Uh, they were literally afraid to go to that area. It was pretty close to the railroad tracks there. Yeah. And it's just nothing, none of that stuff that is behind the Village Gate today was there. Right. It's kind of hard to imagine now that, like, Village Gate was a, like, people were concerned about going there. That whole area now is, I mean, there's so many, you know, finer, you know, finer dining things and, you know, things to do in that area, you know, a new brewery, a new restaurant, yeah, everything. I mean, this whole area is... I don't know. It's it's super comfortable now, and I, it's hard to even picture it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I you know, that may be my, just my loss of memory, but I can hardly <laughs> picture it, too. But uh, So I worked there for a year for uh, Gary and Marsha. Great restaurant people. Great restaurant people. Uh, really, they really are passionate about it. Uh, and then I met Tony Galassi mm-hmm. there, and he asked me to come work for him at the Water Street Grill which was at the time probably the busiest of the fine dining and, and really the cutting-edge fine dining restaurant at the time. And uh, I worked for Tony. I said to Tony, I said, you know, I'm, I'll, I'd love to come work for you because things at the Village Gate were quiet based oh, on sure. what I was saying right. before. Ambitious, uh, ambitious but quiet. Yeah, yeah, it was a great restaurant. You know, I mean, we, I was... You know, practicing my what I had been dying to practice. You know, right. So I think it was a good food experience and beverage experience, and the good service, and it just the location was a little dicey at the time. Mm. Uh, and so I went to work for Tony on Water Street, and that place was insanely busy, and just a it's almost like a blur to me. But I told Tony when I started that I was looking for my own place, right, and. Uh, I wound up finding the Victor Grilling Company, and we did that. And it was interesting because Tony grew up in Victor. Okay. And uh, the restaurant that we bought, um, he had worked in at one point. It was (laughs) called the Blacksmith Shop. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, The tangled webs of Rochester. Yeah. And I don't even know it all. You get 
talk to a guy like Jerry Verasi, he probably knows a lot more. <laughs> I'm sure than I do. Uh, so yeah, then uh, we we did that, bought that, and you know, spent the next twelve years out there in Victor. Then uh, after that got sold, then I went to work for Tony again a second time. Yeah, at Max Eastman. Okay, and the yeah for for those that don't know, Tony Glacey is the head of the whole Max group, which right now comprises of Max at Eastman, uh, Max Chop House, and Aunt Rosie's, uh, which that's on uh, Main Street. Or yep. I'm not sure if it's the address is Main Street, but it's basically on Main Street. Kitty Corner from Eastman Place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so worked for Tony in, uh, at Eastman and worked on the line there in the, at night uh, doing the dinners. And I did that for about a year. And then Tony uh, bought into a restaurant that was called, or going to be called Dish. Okay. And that's where the Max Chop House is now. Interesting. So that was owned by Chuck Arena, a local florist, uh, and uh, John Schick, who's an architect. Mm -hmm. They took over that space from what was called Boom prior to that. Ooh, that's another interesting name. Yeah. It seems like a very 90s name almost. Yeah, it was a t- yeah, well, it was a fun kind of crazy place fitting the times, right. you know. And Paul Van Gelder who started Boom as the chef, he I worked next to him at the Water Street Grill. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's the way it is in the business. Absolutely. You know, you know so uh anyways, uh Tony bought out Chuck and John uh, that were running the place called Dish and uh, turned it into Max Chop House. And so I went there for him to open that. Mm. And then I spent five years there and uh, then Rocco. So five years of the Chop House. And it was, it's one of Rochester's classic steakhouses. Yeah, it's it, it's classic to some degrees. I, I love the place. It's uh, I like that kind of dining. I'm a, kind of a fan of a la carte menus where yeah. I can piece my own thing together. I know? do enjoy it too. Yeah. Now, it's not to say I don't like a good uh, tasting menu style place. Sure, me too. Yeah. But if, if most of the time I'm, um, when I'm going out, I do like to grab little things here and there and figure the, my own way through. Menu. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you want a piece, of, I'm a big meat person anyways, so uh, if I want a steak and a side of sautéed spinach. And, and it's really, I'm kind of a plain eater anyways. So oh, okay. This is more what I'm talking about. This is, I grew up as a plain eater. and uh, were, were you a pain in the ass kid? And when you, were you... No, I would eat anything, but what the food that, uh, that we had at home growing up was pretty plain. My dad didn't like anything. He oh, my, my dad's the same way. I mean, he loves what he loves. Right. But only that. Yeah. There's yeah. no, there's very few exceptions to things like what we made at home was what he enjoyed. Right. And um, the way I describe it, he has like an amazingly trained palate for things. Mm-hmm. He hates everything he doesn't like. Right. And he can taste everything. <laughs> That's great. You know, with just a, like a few grains of cumin in there. Like, yeah. does this have cumin in? I'm like, how the hell do you know that? There's yeah. no way you should know that. Well, my dad didn't. And he grew up Italian. Okay. Uh, not in Italy, but. His mom was Italian, and it really cycles back to what I've learned about Italian cooking. But anything, he everything was plain. I never had a, a hamburger with anything other than meat and bun 
till I had my first McDonald's hamburger when I was a kid. Really? So he's very plain, no condiments, no okay. vinegars, no, he wasn't, they weren't, no fish. It must have been more out of a, I don't know, you know, maybe a poverty thing. An availability or, thing at the time, Availability too. at the time, and uh, I don't think they, I, his mom didn't grow up near the coast in Italy. So right. maybe fish was not on their table either. Uh, so anyways, very plain eater. So I still like my burgers with pretty plain, <laughs> you know, and sandwiches. I don't like a lot of stuff on. So it's just, uh, I'm almost forget where, where we, how we got to this. It doesn't <laughs> matter. That's, that's fine. That's, I find that interesting because, you know, I'm a, I'm farther, farther afield from plain in my typical preferences, but it's that thing when something ends up being perfect and it doesn't need all the extra stuff. And it's it's that um, I love the perfection and simplicity, and it's really really hard to do when you're doing let's say a hamburger, but when it's almost a perfect hamburger with maybe just cheese on it and that's it. That's me. Yeah, it's hard to do though. You have to have great meat. Yep. You have to cook it perfectly. Yep. Yep. And you still have to season it without knowing that it's over seasoned. Right. It's that, right. It's all the little things right. that pop into. Um that perfection and simplicity. Well, your sandwich on a burger is not going to be, unless you do have it perfect and it's the right meat with the right amount of fat and you cook it right and season it right. It's, I mean, you can make a a lousy burger a good experience with a lot of juicy and or gooey components. And And there's been, there's so many places that open. I'm I'm not going to name names of places that open where I've taken you know, they put all these huge toppings on, whether it's, you know, fried things and giant toppings and huge burger sandwiches. Uh, it is a sandwich, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, you know, double patties and tons of stuff. And then I take a piece of the meat off to the side and I taste it and it tastes like garbage. Yeah. I'm like, well, you made something that tasted okay as a whole, but you didn't pay attention to the little things and you lost that huge opportunity to be actually great. Right. Right, you can make anything taste yeah. okay if you slather enough stuff on it. Yeah, you know I've had I've had meat on bun burgers, and I think of one especially that I had at Mise Plus years ago that uh, was a five napkin burger and it had nothing on it. Yeah, to, you know, and so then, and that's okay. That was one of the best burgers I ever had. Yeah, and there's a few in town that are kind of like that. I mean, you know, great example, obviously. Um, you know, Good Luck's hamburger is very much like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, they're grinding their own meat. They're doing it really well. Um, McCann's another great example. They're dry aged burger mm-hmm. on a roll with one piece of aged cheese is pretty much perfect. Yeah. I love it needs that. nothing else. Yeah. Right. Um, but there's, there's so few that can live up to that kind of standard, um, without toppings. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I don't eat a lot of burgers, but when I want one, why would I go for another one that doesn't, that can't live up to that standard? Yeah, burgers are, you know, that's a whole topic on its own, I suppose. Oh, of course it is. I mean, I grew up here, so I grew up eating at a place called Don and Bob's on Monroe Avenue. And uh, that's your classic Rochester burger playing, which I think you're not a fan of. Yeah, You know, it's it's a very specific thing. Now, I like like hot sauce. I think it is delicious. But I, I think because, you know, I have that some of that same sensibility about respecting, I mean... Respecting every part of a thing, and it doesn't matter what it is. Like if you're not respecting the entire part of the process, 
that's what bugs me. Right. And really, what is what is a Rochester burger but covering up what is essentially a subpar ingredient with a very flavorful meat sauce? Yeah. Which is I, I find it delicious. Yeah. Um, but what are you you're covering up a bad hamburger? Yeah. I'd yeah. rather put it on you know a Zweigel's hot, which is delicious. Oh yeah, and I a love great that. product. Yeah. Yeah, I love that too. I you know I say I don't ever eat anything on a burger, but I do. I guess every once in a while I do like that. Hot sauce kind of thing, and the was hot, hot sauce has been a thing here for like is was yeah. that always here? I think so, as far as I know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like I say, we I ate a lot of that stuff as a kid at this place, Don and Bob's, which was a great restaurant, and and all these places around town are the same today. You know, yeah, I guess their menus maybe are expanded a little more, but basically the same thing, same yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, I like. I, I used to love those places. I was listening to something the other day about a hot dog, and the guy was talking about how in his locale, they take the hot dog and they split it completely and they butterfly it and fry it on a griddle that way. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's how they did them in Rochester. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, do they still do that? I've, I haven't gotten a hot dog in one of those Actually, places. A lot of a lot of them still do that. They yeah. split it. And, yeah, yeah, that's great. It, it really is. I yeah. mean, it's really expanding. How much crust can you get? Yeah, on something right. That has no more surface, surface area. Yeah. yeah, it has no surface area. How do you make it better? Right. Oh, right. that extra crust. I mean, how can you get better than that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's one of those. You know, growing up, I grew up in Buffalo, so it was Salins for us. Yep. Um, which I still love, but you know, moving here and learning about you know what this Weigel's dog is in comparison, it's one of those super local things. Everywhere's got a hot dog. Yeah, yeah. Different areas have the different styles, and I do love the white. I think it, it is. Yeah. A great product. Oh, me too. I know. I you know everybody loves their local hot dog. In Boston, it was uh, Pearl's Country Club. I think was the ones that we Ooh, used. That's at a the that's restaurant. a great name. Yeah, those were cool. Uh, but I was Weigel's is really, really hard to beat, I think. Yeah. Know? And the white one, I love it, you know. Now, where my girl Cindy comes from, they, I think up here, you're either ordering, what I used to remember, you were ordering a white, or maybe, I think they used to call the Reds Texas. Yeah, I think there's still, there's still some labeling on that. Okay. But I, I think it's kind of, you know, if you're here, nobody ever calls it that. Yeah. I remember standing in line and the girl saying, you know, they used to yell out the order to the cooks, you know, <laughs> and she would say one white hot, one Texas, one burger, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Now where Cindy comes from, a Texas hot, they don't have white hots there. No. So a Texas hot is a red hot with the hot sauce like they make here mm-hmm. and maybe a few other maybe onions or whatever. But that's now and I kept saying, well, you know, that's not what it's. You know, in Texas, you're just getting a red hot. You're not necessarily getting right. all those toppings. Well, because, I mean, you go even to Buffalo, people call, there's places called Texas hot places. And, you know, they're usually, you'll get like a charcoal grill and with a similar kind of hot sauce to what we have here, different, differently spiced. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a lot of like the Greek diners would serve it. Yeah, and sure. Like, I, yeah, I, it's I, a Greek thing, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I remember these specific things that I would go out with my dad and we'd do. Um, like we'd go out and the, these are like, I, I was, I was telling my buddy Chris Clemens about some of the stuff before, like, these are the things I have nostalgia for. We'd go out fishing at the small boat Harbor in Buffalo, you know, that's over in like South Buffalo area. Mm-hmm. And you go out and we come back at like one in the morning from, you know, trolling for big fish right. in Lake Erie near the, near the break walls. 
Wow. And we'd go out we'd go out after for either Texas Hots or we'd go to Mighty Taco. Mighty Taco, Late sure. at night. Yeah. And it's, you know, neither of them were actually good. Right. But, you know, there's this specific memories you have of going out and, like, those kind of experiences are hard. You can't, you can't replace those. No. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, no hot dog tastes as, you know, I love as Weigel's hot. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's... it's uh, but nothing, nothing tastes that same as going... I just yeah. remember going out for those experiences and yeah. having that specific yeah. thing. And it's... Like you're always chasing some of those sure. some well, of those flavors. I think you know that's why people have stuff shipped to where they live now. You yeah, know? hot dogs might be. There's probably people shipping the hot dogs from Buffalo to Florida. That uh, oh god, yeah. For the people down there that miss that, you know. Yeah, and you can buy them frozen and just you <laughs> yeah. know, bring them down. Yeah. Um, I'm actually I'm interested. So we were we we're talking about obviously we talked about Rocco before. So and you know, you've got French techniques, you've got New American, you've got all these different things that you've learned over your career. Um, why Italian? Why was Italian what you ended up doing at Rocco? Well, back in, um, I'm going to say this was in the, I can't, Jesus, I can't remember when this was. Anyways, uh, I was, had the opportunity to travel to Phoenix, uh, for a few years in a row on vacation. And, uh, we wandered into a brand new place, uh, that had opened called Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix. Really? When it was just opening? We were there. We were there the first, I'm going to say, month that it opened. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I walked in there, and I had my dinner, and I left there saying, my God, this operation is so simple to run. Yeah. And I'm thinking of what I'd been doing for years and years and years with big pots of bubbling stocks and soups and stews. and, And I thought to myself, wow, this is unbelievable. The guy had two appetizers. Six pizzas and one dessert, yeah. you know. And the but then the pizza thing kind of caught my thing, you know. How simple this is something that you more or less make from beginning to end in you know five minutes, you yeah. Know? So I kind of fell in love with that and uh always had this pizza thing in the back of my mind. All right, so you got you got a little more time. Can we can, sure. can we come back for a little bit more? Because yeah. you just brought up <laughs> the biggest hot button thing in my head is pizza. And right. when you were visiting, you know, you know, Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix is well regarded as one of the best pizzerias in the entire country. And I got to know some more. Okay. So I'm going to take another break, and we'll see what happens with this one.